Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're crossing over. We're talking about the crossover of video games and board games, and we're talking to Charlie Cleveland from Unknown World Entertainment. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Gabe. Longtime fan. I've been listening to your your podcast pretty much since it arrived. I think I've listened to every episode or almost every episode. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you listening, and I'm excited to have you on the show. You're a guy that uh, I think you're one of the perfect people in the world to talk about this particular topic. Uh, you, your game Subnautica uh, has done, it's done okay. It's, it's done pretty well. You know, I guess, you know, you sold what, like 5 million copies, give or take? Yeah. I mean, I, I always tell people, uh, you know, like it did take us like 20 years to get to this point where we finally make a game that does really well. But I'm sure from the outside, it looks really easy and like overnight, but we both know that's not how it worked. 20 years to be an overnight success, <laughs> just like everybody else, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It always looks so easy from the outside, but. Yeah, for sure. But congratulations on, on incredible success. Subnautica, it looks amazing. I was, I was watching some playthrough videos before uh, we started talking. I just I haven't played it yet, but I want to get an idea. And it just looks phenomenal. I'm actually looking forward to playing it. Awesome. Sometime I'll send soon. you a copy. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm really excited to kind of get your understanding on how video games and board games, like the juxtaposition to use my English teacher word, but basically the things that cross over, the things that are parallel and and uh, in, interesting in both of these spaces because I know you know I've talked to several uh, video game designers and developers and they a lot of them talk about how 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 important uh, board games and prototyping different things are mm-hmm. in their overall design process and you've been working on some board games you got a board game hitting Kickstarter mm-hmm. and so I'm really just I'm pumped to kind of get your ideas on, on the topic but before we get into that who are you how'd you get into game design all that kind of thing yeah my name is Charlie Cleveland I've been doing uh, video games for gosh over over twenty years. Um, definitely one of the older people that I see looking around GDC at the Game Developers Conference. I'm 47. I've been making games in some form pretty much since mid-college. Um, I, you know, got together with my friends during, you know, during the summers. I would meet with my old friends that I grew up with. We'd rent a house and we'd work on a video game together. Back then it was all video games, never board games, but I've been making games that whole time. Then I worked for a bunch of companies in the Boston area and made a a Half-Life mod back in 2001 called Natural Selection, which was like a hybrid RTS FPS, which is a real-time strategy, first-person shooter for you non-video game people. Really weird combination. Ended up by doing well enough uh, just like audience-wise that I could move out to California and convince some investors to invest in us to do a commercial sequel. And that took a long time, you know, basically slowly built the company um you know raised money and then we've been pretty much doing that like uh ever since you know natural selection 2 gave us enough money to then build subnautica which now finally has done so well that we actually can we don't have to like talk to any suits anymore we can just we can make whatever games we want to make now which is unbelievable and about five years ago um i really wanted to get into board games because you know it's such a different uh different discipline you know, video games are, at least for our company, we have like 30 or 40 people working on one game for years at a time. 
And I just really hungered after this idea of like, you know, the single designer, like this is my creative vision and I can actually just make something. Not only can I make something quickly, um, that's really kind of mine, at least that's what I thought before getting the game published. Uh, you know, you can also like make something quickly and without a lot of programming and art and, and you don't have to worry about the budgets because the budgets are so small that you can just make something just for the sheer joy of it. And, um, I have found that a lot of it, it's changed a lot in, in my view. Now I realize now that, that, uh, board games actually are really collaborative, especially once you get to the publishing stage. And I've actually really, really valued that. And I feel like the people I've worked with have really made the game, this last game, uh, a lot better. So yeah, that's how I got into board games. Uh, and along the way, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about um, board game prototyping and video games because I had done a little bit of that before. I've done a little bit of, you know, basically at the start of every every video game, I you know spend a week and I try a bunch of different board game prototypes. So maybe we should talk about that. Yeah, definitely. And before we get into it, I want to just frame the conversation about what we're talking about, right? So when we say crossover, I want to go into what's some, what's some, what are some of the things that are similar? What are some things that are different? Mm. You've worked on both. You know, you've kind of seen the, the different ins and outs of both. And, and so, yeah, definitely. Let's talk about prototyping. Let's talk about the difference in team sizes, the difference in publishing, money, budgets, all that kind of stuff. Let's let's, let's do it. Let's jump right sure, in. Sure. Okay, me we'll about, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about prototyping from the video game standpoint, because I know a lot of people, they use board game, they'll, they'll just throw cards mm -hmm. on the table and start trying mm -hmm. to play game and then they'll turn it into a digital format. So tell me kind of how that works and, and just kind of the overall design process that, that goes with it. I mean, I would say the kind of the, the mindset around prototyping both video games and board games is pretty close to the same, i.e., you know, I always talk about making something crappy or like uh, designing for the garbage can. Like you just have to make something that you know is going to be crap. You just have to make something fast and get it on the table and get it in front of people, at least in front of yourself. Um, but, you know, generally I would, you know, encourage people to get it in front of other people too. For Subnautica, we actually did do that. If you search uh, on YouTube, you search for Subnautica prototypes, you can actually see the earliest stuff that we, that we made. And we actually released, I think, all the prototypes. And they are so horribly ugly. It is all big white cubes, um, you know, like stock art from, you know, downloaded from the internet. It's like really crappy fish that don't animate, but do like swim around. Um, like it's pretty much the ugliest thing you've ever seen. But if, I mean, actually, I think we released these uh, so you can play them. If not, just ping me and I'll, I'll send you a copy. Um, you, If you play the, play those prototypes, you can see that the that the game is there. Like you can feel it, the atmosphere, the feelings of being underwater, the kind of like mystery of like looking off into the gloom and like not knowing what's down there. The, even the loot loop where you kind of like leave your submarine, swim around a little bit, look for some loot, get back to your sub before you run out of oxygen, use whatever you built to, to craft something, which then changes how, you, where you can go, what you can see or how you, how, how you can uh, maneuver around the world. That loop, all that was there from the very first prototypes. So you can do it. Um, and I think those are very similar um, between board games and video games. And then of course it's a, it's a process of kind of like figuring out which part of the prototype is really the center of your game and kind of like listening to it, listening to the game and seeing what part is exciting you and what part is exciting your players and then making another prototype. And then once you are, far enough along where you really feel good about it, I guess that's when you start with the production values and you maybe even throw the whole thing away and you start building it for real. 
Yeah, very cool. And I guess maybe a better way to kind of frame the conversation is basically what can board game designers learn from video games? And I think that might be a, a kind of a really cool way to kind of approach these different things. And so when you were kind of working on the board game side of things, when you start working on Vampire Vendetta, right, the game on Kickstarter right now, what were some things you had learned from that video game prototyping stage that you could then kind of cross over and bring with you that kind of helps you along in, in the board game design process? I mean, for me, probably the big, probably the biggest thing is like, um, like understanding the emotions in the game and seeing when you give, when you have someone play your game or, you know, try a game or even for a couple of rounds, you don't have to do a lot of it. Just seeing what, how people are actually feeling and noticing how you're, how you are feeling and then, and realizing what emotions you're actually looking to elicit in your game. To me, that's, it's the same in video games and board games. Um, so I knew, uh, like the early prototypes for uh, Vampire Vendetta, it was all about, I mean, yes, mechanics, but it was all about just what are the feelings of being a, an immortal and what is it like? Are, how, how, do, how do they feel in relation to humans? How do they feel in relationship to each other? And that, I mean, that I got directly from Subnautica because like the game wasn't very fun then, but it did, you know, you can create a mood very quickly, even just with a soundtrack you know, with one song in a main menu. That's what I, I always start with that. Uh, actually, even before a, a board game prototype, I just like get a really quick quick main menu up and I put in, I just find some music like on Spotify or YouTube or whatever and stick it in there. And I, and I spend a lot of time really finding the right track. But to me, that's, it's about understanding what the emotion is and then looking for it and kind of that's your, that's your North Star. So I would say that those two are the same between video games and board games. Besides that, I mean, I guess um, probably just not thinking about, I mean, in, in board games, there's, you know, you don't have too much content. I mean, I guess I haven't worked on a game with like hundreds of cards before or hundreds of elements, but I think of video games as having a lot more content and definitely taking a lot more people and a lot more, like lot, many more months to actually make. So um you know, in video games, you just kind of throw something together and you make it crap and you just know that you're going to, going to replace everything in board games. I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like the, some of the original ideas that were in my earlier prototypes are actually still in the game. So, um, in that sense, they're quite different. Yeah, for sure. Now, one thing that video games have as a huge advantage is actually what you're talking about just a second ago with, with the mood. Now you can cre you can create the mood with the music. You know, you can also do it with sound effects and lighting and, and all sorts of different things. You can kind of create that in a video game, a little easier than a board game. And so when you were switching over and designing a board game, what were some things that you were trying to do to kind of set the mood where it's a little bit harder, right, to kind of bring out the mm -hmm. theme? So what were some things that maybe some challenges you ran into with your, your board game stuff? Uh, but what were some ways that you were really bringing out the mood in the more analog space? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I looked at the most thematic board games that, that I've played, and I'm definitely, you know, on the Ameritrash side, the much more theme side. Um, I don't know, I guess it's all about like the feel of the components. For me, like in this game, it was like all about blood. You know, everything's about blood. So, you know, like you want to make sure that you've got like tokens that they were like glass tokens that actually were, you know, they're red and kind of creepy and... Uh, there's like a dagger that you passed around for the first player token. So that, I don't know, that was one way to get that kind of feeling. Uh, I guess another would be just in the, you know, in mechanics, you want to, you know, if you want players to feel immortal 
or maybe not quite immortal, but super powerful. Uh, I alluded to that before, but like they want to make sure you want them to feel like they're prey. Their humans are their prey. So they can just like, they have in, immense power, but where they, where they crumble is when they're facing other vampires. So that was just purely mechanics. Like they can, any, any vampire can take a human on, you know, if they're uncontested, they, it's very easy for them to take a human. But as soon as a vampire comes in, like the, the way all the way all the cards work with the counters and the rule breaking, rule changing, it's really easy for one vampire to counter another if they know what the vampire is doing. So it's all about knowing what that is. So I felt like that was pretty vampire-y. Um, certainly, I think you're right. I think it's probably a lot easier to create uh, a mood in a video game, although it's probably a lot harder to sustain the mood um, because for a video game, it has to be often 10, 20, 30, 40 hours. So you probably you know, multiple play sessions. So people are, you know, that's a much longer period to sustain that for. Um, I feel like a lot of it, I mean, it's kind of stupid, but like even the font that I chose for the original rule book, I, I like would, would obsess about that stuff or the box. You know, you make a box for, for a game when even in a prototype. And I like painted these like chocolate boxes, you know, painted them black and found like these really creepy runes that I would like print out and stick on the cover and, I guess it was just much more, you know, just the physical side and just feeling like, I don't know, putting like velvet in the box or something to like really elicit the feeling of vampires. Yeah, but you bring up a really good point. You know, in a video game, you have so many assets, so mm -hmm. many characters and pieces of art and different things going on that if a handful of them aren't really bringing the theme out for the game or really creating the mood the way you want it to, ah, it's okay because there's a thousand okay. other things to do. Yeah, it's it. true. Yeah. It's true. The conveyor belt of content. Yeah. And so in a board game, you have so many fewer touch points, you know, and so the box makes a bit, it's a huge deal yeah. and the fonts and all those things and the way the rule book is written, like, you know, adding in flavor text here and there and, and all that kind of mm -hmm. thing. It, it's huge because you have so many fewer opportunities. And so mm -hmm. I think it's good to obsess about those things. Not, you know, not too much, not to the point where you just get, you know, become a perfectionist and never get anything done, but to right. actually realize that all these things matter. And so as soon mm -hmm. as a person picks up the game off the shelf at the gaming store or they see it on Kickstarter or that, you know, wherever they see it, that you're already trying to set the mood, set the tone for what kind of game you have. And also it makes sense to, to make sure that the image on the outside of your box and the font and all these things actually line up with the weight of the game and the style of play. Yeah, you know, I played a absolutely. game a while back and on the outside, it looked like this really thematic, complicated, deep, you know, like experience of a game. And then we played it and it was like, Oh, this is, this is really just like a party game. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what is like, y'all need a different artist. Like that art was amazing <laughs> and the game is fine, but it was not mm -hmm. at all what we expected. And so I think you have to really just be, be aware that going in the mood you're setting from just the opening of the box. And so it makes a lot of sense. You know, I have to say also though, I I'm amazed how much the theme will win people over regardless of the depth. Like I know so many people who are loving wingspan and are buying it and buying it for their friends. And like they're it's actually too heavy of a game for them. But it doesn't matter. They're gonna like they're gonna figure out a way to play that game because they love the the birds so much. Yeah, yeah I'm absolutely. just I'm amazed that that actually worked. Right, but again, the art for that game is so yeah, evocative, and yeah. and the game, the way it plays, and the components, mm -hmm. and the little mm -hmm. eggs, and the little bird <laughs> feeder, like everything yeah. comes together, to just give you this really really cool experience. Wingspan I have, I have is an obvious copy. <laughs> <laughs> actual nest for the eggs, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Wingspan is such an obvious case study in what board games need to be if you're really trying to evoke a theme, especially yeah. like you're saying, especially if the theme is not quite as as you know obvious in the way the mm -hmm. game plays necessarily. Um, 
you're going to have to go a little bit above and beyond with components, the box, and all the all the different things. Well, and as an aside, one more aside on wingspan because I love it yeah. so much. The mechanics in wingspan, like totally, in many ways, don't fit birds. Like uh-huh. there is no engine building with birds. I mean, not really. <laughs> and yet, it's it, the the mechanics are so wonderful, and the theme is so wonderful. It, it's a tiny. It doesn't matter that the mechanics don't fit exactly what what it would be like to. I don't know, be a bird watcher. Like I am amazed that that actually doesn't matter. I'm so used to thinking that mechanics have to fit your theme so perfectly, but that I think that's a good example where like the emotions and the art and all that, that basically is that trumps everything else. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, one thing as a video game developer, you have to be very conscious of the marketplace. So you're going to take a game, you're going to work on it for years, years upon years. You're going to take other people's lives into your hands Mm -hmm. and they're going to work on something for years and years. It's going to cost potentially millions of dollars Mm -hmm. and then it's got to sell. And so, you know, let's talk about knowing when to walk away from an idea. I've had several people send me emails and say, gosh, my biggest challenge is I don't know when to persevere and keep going and just fight through these obstacles versus just throw it in the trash, start over, do something different. And I feel like the stakes are so much higher in video games yeah. that it's something you really have to be aware of. So tell me kind of how things work in the video game world. And then let's kind of bring them into the board game world of knowing sure. when to walk away, when to keep going. Well, I think I'm kind of the master of spending way too many years working on a game to make it successful. I mean, I I think I have, you know, I have a pretty long career here and I only have a few games under my belt, which is kind of depressing. But the good part of that is that I feel like... Uh, even if your original idea for the game isn't really the game that you end up by making, if you can keep looking for the fun along the way and keep looking for the thing within the idea that's the real thing, then eventually you can make something that will, that will be successful. And I, you know, Natural Selection Two took, I mean, on the calendar it was ten years from from version from that free mod to the commercial follow up. Now there was like funding in there and there's personal stuff that showed up and, but. If we had just stuck to whatever the idea was, like just basically remaking the sequel and just clinging to this set of features in this one idea, then the game may or may not have succeeded. Same thing with Subnautica. Early on in the game, it was going to be all about like science. You'd science your way through the world and and maybe terraforming it. And we, we just basically discarded all that stuff because we realized it wasn't what the game was telling us. It wasn't where the game, wasn't the sweet spot for the game. So the really good thing about video games is that you know, with early access, this whole, this concept of releasing your game before it's done and getting players to actually pay you for it and, you know, getting their feedback and getting them involved in some way more emotionally than anything else. Um, that you, I mean, that gives you a direct line to the, to their pulse, the pulse of the audience, which is, we just put out this update on this, on this game that they all bought and, you know, they, they said they liked, but no one's actually playing it. Or like no no videos are going up around this update, so obviously something about it didn't really resonate. Um, so we, for us, it was less about will will an un, will an underwater game work. It was more about what under game what underwater game will work, and finding that. So I, I feel like if you're excited about working on a game, and you have that little you know butter butterfly feeling in your in your stomach because you're loving your game so much. Like you just got to keep going with it and, but you have to be flexible about which part of it that you're zooming in on. Like maybe, maybe the one thing that you've been focused on this whole time is only one part of a bigger thing that you, and it's missing that, or maybe the vice versa, you have to zoom in and like most of your game isn't working that well, but there's one core nugget that's amazing. And if you 
kind of focus on that, you can, you can bring that to life and basically fix your game. Gotcha. Now, when do you walk away? I guess with video games, you know, if you can't find any investors, you run out of money. Yeah, (laughs) basically. (laughs) (laughs) But from the like initial idea stage, what are some things that you're looking at to to realize, to to believe that this is going to be a, a, a marketable product, you know, three or four years from now, how do you know, like, even if you're just brainstorming different things, like, tell me some of your, your idea, even in, especially for board games yeah. as well, like what you're looking at to go, okay, this is a, this is a winner. Let's go with this one. I mean, for video games, that's easy. Uh, I mean, the way we do it, which is early access, early access, early access. We don't, we don't make games. Oh, I, I shouldn't say that. We are actually working on a game right now that is not going to go in early access. We're just going to launch it. Um, but as a general rule, I would say if you're doing like kind of a, R&D type game, like one that's not really directly similar to something else already in the market, I would say generally you need to get it out in front of people in a pretty big way and then measure and see see what they're saying. And to me, it's kind of clear. You, you can see when people are excited about it, when they're making videos on it, when they're talking about it. With a board game, I guess I'm definitely not very experienced there, but uh, after working for, gosh, like four years on this vampire game as my first board game, I... I did feel like I got like a master's degree in board game design because I made something like eight really different versions of the game and 40 or 50 smaller versions of it. I really just tried a lot of stuff. Um, you know, going forward, I've, I've done, a, I've made a lot of prototypes since then, since then. I feel like I'm a lot more fluent in making board game prototypes, but there's some that I feel, I can just, I, I'm just feeling it. Like this one, like this one concept, I can feel it's got some legs. This other one, the more I work on it, the more work it needs. So I, I mean, I know a lot of your guests talk about this, but they take a break for a little while and then, you know, they let their mind work on it and they come back in two months or two years and with a, you know, fresh perspective. I think that's something you can do in board games. You can't do nearly as well in video games with technology changing so fast. And um, not to mention all like all those people you mentioned, all your coworkers who, you know, whose jobs and salaries you're you're paying for. Can't really walk away that easily. I mean, we've we've canceled a couple of projects internally, but they were very early stage. They were two months old instead of two years old. And we've just backburnered them and hoping that some concept in there will show up in another game later, be helpful or some piece of technology or who knows, maybe we'll actually come back to one of those games later. Cause we'll figure out, you know, what, what the game actually was the, the really juicy part of that game. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Now, one thing with video games, you keep saying early access, how in the world have you convinced people to pay you to be able to play test your mm-hmm. game? Like, it's just a, like, if I could figure that out for my own company and I feel like the, the Jamie Stegmars of the world mm-hmm. could do this. Yep. Or if, 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 if Jamie said, Hey, I, I got Scythe 2 totally. coming out. Does anybody I, want to pay me 20 bucks to see the, you know, the yep. prototypes? I think he'd be okay. But for yeah. us normal folk, yeah. like how, how did the video game industry kind of make that just normal? And, and that's the way things are done. I mean, Minecraft was a huge part of this um, because Minecraft, you know, if you wanted the game, you didn't really care that it wasn't done. It was so obviously good. Um, it's pretty hard to deny. And I think that's, I'm trying to remember when early access officially started. I mean, I've, I've actually been doing early access in a form since 2000. So the very first game I ever worked on before we had anything working in the game. And I mean, anything we, there was no code we had like written. It was just me then actually code programming. I had written nothing, but I had written a word document for how these like derelict spacecrafts would be designed. Like here's, here's how the, like 
the layout should be, here's how big they should be, the types of entrances into each room, where the resource nodes go. And, and uh, Corey Strader, uh, the artist, main artist on that game, who I'm still working with today, also he's on Subnautica, he just made like all these textures like for the game. So anyone, we just released that Word document with the textures. We stuck it up on Planet Half-Life, which is long gone now. And anyone that had a copy of Half-Life could download that and use the level editor that came with it. And they could just start making levels for our non-existent game. And people did that. It, we, that's how we found our level designers for that game. And some of those went on to join us officially as employees later. So I think it's really different in video games because the barrier is so much lower because you can just like click a link and install something and play with it. For board games with the whole print and play thing, I mean, it's really rough. And you also can't look at a, a board game easily like on YouTube and see if, whether the game, you know, minus production value, you can't look at a board game and see that it's going to be good or not. You really have to play it. And a video game, you know, because it's so much more audiovisual and, and just fundamentally interactive, you know, much, much tighter loop, you know, everything that you do, the game reacts to you. So you can see that that comes to life in, in a YouTube video. Yeah. I think all those things conspire to make early access and board games rough. Yeah. But man, it's such an interesting kind of situation and i love how yeah. you found level designers like mm -hmm. you just kind of basically put it out there in the community and you just see the cream rise to the top and go hey you want a job yep. <laughs> that's a cool thing and that was a uh, job yeah. where they could get paid but then yeah they, you know they just wanted to join the team just like many uh -huh. of us we just want to work on games like yeah. how much more fun can life be than working on games yeah very cool it it reminds me of time stories mm -hmm. uh, one thing i love about time stories in the box it basically tells you how to create your own scenarios and then they say, hey, if you think your scenario is good enough to be published, send it to us That's and we'll, we'll play it. Yeah. And it, it gives you all the breakdowns, like everything that they're looking for, how many tokens and dice, like all these different things. And because the system is is very uh, kind of, I don't want to say it's not generic, but it's it's very like open for mm -hmm. interpretation. Mm -hmm. You can do lots of different things with it. They had wow. so many people send them scenarios that are now being published, you know, from the community. And I think that's such a cool that's thing. That's an incredible idea. Sorry. It was their Achilles heel too, right? Because remember when that game came out, everyone's like, what do you mean I have to pay $40 to play a game once? Like that's yeah. a ripoff. So they were kind of covering their own butts to say, look, like as long as we have all these expansions that you can buy, you can like extend your, your core game more. Yeah, definitely. And it's something I'm looking into right now. I've got a card game coming out where basically you have different scenarios. It's a fantasy game. Or? Yeah, yeah. So it's the next hunted game. Uh, wow, the next one's great. called Realm of Shadows. And it's got all these different scenarios. And so you might be in the swamp. You might be in a dungeon. You might be in you know the forest, like all these different things. And you basically, depending on the scenario, you kind of build the hunted deck that you're going to go through and, and try to defeat the bad guys and stuff like that. And there's all these event cards and stuff like that. But I'm going to add in the rule book in the back, it's going to say, hey, if you want to create your own scenario, mm -hmm. here's kind of the, the way I, I came up with it for this mm -hmm. game and kind mm -hmm. of things. And I would love to see you more be created. And it would be really cool, you know, maybe down the road a year or two to have like all these different new expansion scenarios and, and put that out there. Maybe as an actual product and, and you know, basically do the same thing y'all did is find uh, level designers and from yep. the community and say, hey, let's all work together and make some really cool new scenarios, new, new monsters, new uh, levels and things like that. I think it's just a really cool way to reach out to the creative people in your community and say, hey, Absolutely. you want to collaborate? You want to go deeper in being part of this? I think it's a really, really cool idea. And when you hire your first employee, you know exactly who you're going to hire because it's going to be the person that made all the cool expansions, which by the way, you're going to want to keep doing. So you're just going to hire that one person. And then now you've got some revenue for your company and you can go off and do the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Super smart.
So let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about getting stuck. Because I'm sure it happens in video games. Yeah. Even though you got all these people in the room, that's one thing that's helpful. You got 30 people. You can say, hey, anybody got an idea how to fix this? And you know, Bob over there from accounting is like, well, what if we do this? Like, cool. And so board games a little more interesting because it might just be you in the design process. But tell me about getting stuck and how you get unstuck. So for me, I wouldn't say it's stuck, but when you can't start a new something new, that's one thing. And then it's once you're making something, getting unstuck. So the two, I have two basic methods. One, which is they're both <laughs> really simple, but the you know they you know in tech they they always talk about making an MVP, a minimum viable prototype, which is like the smallest version of your product that someone might want to use. Um, so we don't make, I don't like to make an MVP. I like to make a minimum crappy playable and MCP. So you just decide that you're going to make something totally crappy. It's just going to be a steaming pile, but it is going to be something that someone can play. And once I, once I give myself the freedom to make something crappy, then suddenly I'm unblocked because then the ideas start flowing and I'm not, I'm not judging those ideas. I'm just making them in. And of course, once you, you see a little glimmer of one cool thing that gets you more excited and then you're kind of on a roll. So that's how I get started. Uh, then I guess what the harder part for me is like when you get stuck with a, in the middle of a project. Um, for board games, that seems to happen to me a lot more. But, um, you know, this there's, of course, this, you know, your guests have all talked about this interplay between theme and mechanics. And for me, if I find that I'm getting stuck on one of them, like if I'm stuck with a problem with, with mechanics, then I fall back on theme. I say, well, what would this theme require? Or what, if I was going to get inspired from the theme to fix this problem, how would I fix this problem? And vice versa, if you get stuck with the theme, how would, how would the mechanics solve it? For some reason, that seems to work like half the time for me. And then, of course, putting something on the back burner, handing it over to your brain and just saying, okay, brain, I'm going to stop thinking about you right now. Yeah, I'm in the fore, forefront of my brain, but I want you to keep working on this one problem. So here's the problem. You just kind of say it to yourself. You know, Thomas Edison used to do this before he went to bed from what I've read. He would formally give his brain a problem to think about while he slept. And in the morning, sometimes it would be solved. Sometimes it wouldn't. Um, that's the, you know, like we've all had those shower thoughts where something comes to you immediately. I think that's because your, your uh, non-conscious brain is working on stuff for you. Um, then I'm trying to think what, how else we get unstuck. I mean, just delaying projects for a while. Sometimes if I get stuck for a really long time, I just, I just table it. And that's kind of where I am with a couple of prototypes right now. And I think that's okay. Cause you can, I don't know. I think with a board game, it's much easier to start and stop. And the idea in a board game is so clearly a, a bigger indicator for its reach and success and marketability than in a video game. Video game, the implementation to me seems like a much bigger idea. So I feel like you can just, if, you, if, you're having, if you're having trouble with something, then maybe you have the wrong idea in a board game or a different, you know, you can reframe it and think about, um, think about the idea in a new way. And that will a lot of times fix it. But I don't really know. That's so much more time on video games than board games. <laughs> Definitely. But I love the idea of giving yourself permission to make crap. Giving yeah. yourself permission to suck and realizing that, okay, the thing I'm making right now, this is not going to, no one else is going to play this right now. Like mm -hmm. this is garbage and that's okay because it's hopefully getting me from point A to point B and maybe even point F down mm -hmm. the road and figuring these things out. This is not what's going to go on a store shelf. You mm -hmm. know, one thing I, I tell my, my English class, my, my seniors when we're writing, 
I was like, look, guys, I've never read the rough draft of Lord of the Rings, but I'm sure it sucked. I'm, I bet you it was yeah. not very good. It probably had the ideas that, you know, that eventually became one of the best written books of all time. Uh, but you, you don't get to see that. All you see is the, the book on the shelf in the library or at the bookstore or wherever. That's what you see. And so just know that going in, the things you write, they're going to be terrible. And that's okay yep. because it's, okay. it's not... It's a part of the process. It's more than okay. It's actually crucial because you don't yes. get to the later stuff until you do the first stuff. Exactly. You build. You're building forward. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's a pyramid, you know, and you, you put a yeah. whole bunch of blocks yeah. down on the bottom that, you know, they, they need to have foundation. They need to be something, but that gum, it's not going to be the, the final brick. Like you're going to have so many other bricks to put down there to, to have the final product. And, sure. and if you want to make something great, like if you want to become a great writer, how do you do it? You write. You just oh, yeah. write a lot. Like it doesn't have to, you don't have to write great stuff. You just have to write a lot. Like say you want to learn Italian or Spanish. You speak a lot and you're going to make mistakes. And that's that's every single person that ever learns to speak a foreign language, like a second language, they all go through that. I mean, think about how many how many letters J.R.R. Tolkien probably wrote or short stories or there's probably, he probably was writing nonstop is my guess. I, I mean, I'm probably totally wrong, but that would be the person that could create, that could write Lord of the Rings would have probably written a lot more for a long period of time. Yeah, for sure. And another thing to think about, going back to your language analogy. So the general idea is that, is that kids learn languages better mm-hmm. because their brains are like sponges and right. they're just able to absorb all these things. Well, I read an article a while back and it was ta- it was this person that was like a polymath or something like that. They, they, they got 10 languages or something. And uh, they said, well, how, how? And they said, well, here's the thing about kids. Kids, okay, maybe their brain is a little bit more, you know, it's developing. Mm-hmm. To, okay, it gives them a little bit of advantage. But the main thing is they're not afraid to sound stupid. That's they're it. not afraid to make a mistake and go, oh, oh okay, no, that's not how you pronounce that. This is, oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> they're, they're not afraid. And so they, they just practice and do it over yep. and over again. They make a bunch of mistakes and we have a little more grace for them because they're kids. And that's also part of it. It's people around you, maybe not making fun of you and you're yep. garbage at first. But they just keep doing it over and over again, make a bunch of mistakes. And then eventually it becomes just, they know it. They know how yep. to do it. They do it I well. I agree more. Yeah. And actually, I was going to say another thing I learned uh, recently from, from this podcast, actually, um, was that I, um, the story of uh, Jerry, Seinfeld, Jerry Seinfeld and the Don't Break the Chain. I, yeah. I had heard that before, and for some reason, I had never actually implemented it. I don't know why. It just seemed dumb, and I'm like, whatever. And then I challenged myself a few months ago to work on board games every single day, no matter how busy I was. I mean, and some of those days was just insane. I'm like, I have literally five minutes to work on this. And I have to say, I've never felt so creative in my life to do a hundred days in a row of board game design. The prototypes were shooting out of every orifice. I mean, some are good, some are bad. I don't, maybe they're all bad. I don't know, but I feel like I've completely broken down that barrier of, you know, my own resistance to making something. Yeah, for sure. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard that episode where I talked about oh, yeah. Jerry Seinfeld's method, effectively he has a, or he, I don't know if he still does it, but back in the day when he was really writing jokes and doing comedy shows and, and a TV show and all that, he had a giant calendar on his wall. And every day that he worked on jokes and comedy, he would put a big X, a big red X mm-hmm. on that day on the calendar. And his goal was to never break the chain, to never have any uh, gaps in the chain. And so every single day of the year, it would have a big red X that he worked on comedy. And I can't remember if it was like 30 minutes a day or an hour or something like that, mm-hmm. but that was his goal. And that's how he became one of the best comics of all time. One of the highest paid, you know, TV show, uh, personalities or whatever, ever. Right. And now he's got that little driving around with comedians and having coffee. Mm-hmm. And he's, so he keeps, he keeps doing these things. And it's just an incredible 
system that it works it works for me this is something i do uh, the board game design calendar that we put out uh, a couple months ago it's got a little spot on every day it's got a little box oh, that's you right put a red you're gonna do that that's yeah. cool absolutely because it, it changes things you know i talked to richard lonius way back early in the uh, podcast and he's one of the most prolific designers of all time he's put out so many games and i asked him i was like how many i give me a percentage of the number of ideas that actually become games or the number of like even prototypes that become actual published sellable products and he said, I don't know, man, like 1%. I said, wow. 1%. Okay, one of the best designers on the planet wow. says 1%. He said, yeah, but I just have to create so many that 1% becomes a pretty big number. And I was like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So if you Amazing. have 1% of your ideas that turn into anything good, then you're just going to have to create a lot of stuff. And I'm just kind of taking it in, from that angle. I love that. I don't, I don't think there's anything one can't do if they do it every day. Yeah. Even if it's five minutes. I, there's something magic that happens because it never leaves your mind. Like it's always yep. there. It, it never context switches out of your mind. Like, right. you know, whenever you're walking down the street, it's still there because it never, you know, you you never let it slide. It's always in the forefront. So your mind, I think, is working on on problems for you all the time. Definitely. And I would say, and a lot of people, a lot of people struggle with this. And so my advice to anyone that, that's having a hard time with doing it every day is aim as low as you possibly can. Just aim lower. If you're struggling, aim lower. I saw a uh, Twitter thread the other day and this lady was talking, she's a writer and she's written like five or six books in the last three years. Like it, it's been a ton. These are like really long, like full length novels. Mm -hmm. And someone said, how in the world do you write so much? And she said, well, I write every day, but my goal is only 200 words a day. And I was like, 200 words, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's like a paragraph. Like that's nothing. Yep. And she said, and I, you know, most days I write more. But my goal is always 200. I aim super yep. low. And so on days I feel sick, I don't feel good, I'm, I'm traveling, whatever, yep. I'm going to write 200 words. And most days that 200 turns into 1,000 or 2,000 or three. You know? And so you just aim as low as possible because a lot of times once you get going, again, objects in motion, stay in motion. So how yep. do you get into motion? Because you know, the biggest thing is getting off the couch, right? Totally. Getting out of that place of rest. And so how can you do that in your game designing to where you're going to get into motion? And even if it's just cutting out some cards or writing down some ideas or whatever, but something, because it's probably going to lead to more. You know, there were times where I would, I would come back like from a party, like basically drunk. And I'm like, oh crap, like I can't believe I haven't done this. I'm not going to break the chain. And I sit down, I can barely focus on the screen. And I'm like, I'm working on games. Like it may only be five minutes, but I remember a couple of times doing that. And I, it, you know, like you said, every once in a while, or actually many of those times, it turns into five minutes, turns into five hours. Like it can just, you get inspired and it, and it, you roll with it. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I found super helpful is basically turning this whole concept into habits, right? And so I had a kid the other day, he said, Mr. Barrett, what are your, uh, what are your goals for 2020? I was like, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't have goals. Like I have, I have habits that I'm trying to create that will turn into me accomplishing things this year, right? I want to, I want to write to look another at. book. I want to create more games. I want to do all these things in my business and, and, and ministry and things like that. And so I'm just trying to create habits that get me closer to that every single day. Mm -hmm. And I explained to him the reason. So a lot of times when we have goals, uh, you know, even if you accomplish the goal, which is great, then a lot of times you have this kind of lull where you kind of fall off. You know, it's why people that lose, they're, they're trying to lose a hundred pounds. Yeah. They'll lose the hundred pounds and then they'll gain 50 back. It's yep. like, well, what happened? It's like, well, they had a goal and then they reached it and they didn't know what to do next. And so it's like, how do you create a healthy lifestyle, create mm -hmm. habits so that losing hundred pounds is inevitable, but then you just keep trending upward. You just keep trending towards the yep. lifestyle that you want to live. And there's never that drop off. There's never that lull. Yeah. The habits let you be the person 
that yeah. achieves the goals. The goals are relevant, but becoming the person that does naturally achieve those goals is the goal, is the real goal. Exactly. I read a quote a while back and it said, don't, let's see, it said, become a millionaire, but don't do it for the money. Become a millionaire <laughs> for the person you have to become right. to become a millionaire. I was like, wow, that's really cool. Because you start thinking Amazing. about self-discipline and money management and, and managing your, your spending habits and managing, right. you know, learning how to invest and, and all these different things. Talking to people and trying yeah. new things. Right. All the things you have to learn and, and all, the, all the skill sets you have to create in yourself to be able to become a millionaire. That's why you want to do it. The money is just a side effect. I was like, that's a really cool way to think about it. Like money's, money's not a goal. Money's just a side effect of the person I'm trying to yep. become. You know? That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And whether that's with your family and your marriage or your business or your faith, like whatever, I think this mm -hmm. applies uh, in all these different realms, you know, especially in uh, design and creativity. And so, you know, if you're listening to this and, and trying to figure out like, what do I do? I think start here, start figuring out what are the habits I need to create in my life that's going to make success, whatever you define as success, make it inevitable versus making it, you know, some goals that, you know, maybe I'll reach down the road. No, no. Habits, habits are the place to begin. Couldn't agree more. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about let's kind of let's let's look at the other side. You know, I've, I've seen a lot of video games that are actually borrowing ideas from board games. There's a lot of deck building mm -hmm. games out there uh, on Steam and other places. Play the Spire, Hearthstone, yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. And there's yeah. tons of these deck building kind of games. Uh, and so, what are some interesting trends you've seen kind of go the other way, where video game designers are learning from board game designers and, and kind of bringing it over into the digital space? Yeah, I mean, those uh, Slay the Spire is probably. I mean, Hearthstone is definitely the one that like has been the biggest game I and mean, they're pulling in, I don't know, 50 million a month or something like that now. Um, but of course, Hearthstone started kind of inspired from magic, but then moved towards, uh, I think, I think Blizzard realized that they, they didn't want to limit themselves to a board game and that they ultimately they're making a video game. So they, they made sure to do things in that game that are only possible because it's, because it's a video game. You could never make Hearthstone the board game without making some big changes. Um, you know, with all the, they have like cards that create copies of other cards and, uh, you know, randomization and, you know, checking that all the cards in your deck are unique, which then trigger another effect. It would just be too tiresome to do in a, in an actual physical game. Um, so that's my favorite example is where they, things, video games are inspired by board games and maybe they start there, but they don't end there because to me, a, a digital board game is really missing the point of a of a video game. Um, there's so much more you can do with it, so I, I feel like it's just where you start. Um, Slay the Spire is interesting because it, I mean, that's a it's a real it's a deck building game, but again, it has like there's so many combinations in there, and it keeps track of everything for you. I, I think you probably could make that as a board game, but it would probably be probably wouldn't want to. Um, there's definitely a lot of bad examples, I would say of video games that basically just, uh, are making, you know, digital board games. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the industry probably has more bad examples than good ones, but I'm really glad to see that we're kind of moving in that direction, um, uh, where kind of the, the boundary between those two is a little more fluid. And of course we're seeing the opposite with, um, you know, like iPhone enabled or iPad enabled board games, which I think can be pretty cool. Although usually I think it's not working very well. Usually it's just like an extra thing that you have to deal with and it pulls you out of the analog experience. But I'm super excited about that concept. Like, I mean, how come we don't have board games where you can play competitively against other teams over the internet using an iPad? It seems like that should be a, a no brainer. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think right now we're in a lot of just growing pains of people mm-hmm. figuring out the technology, figuring out how to kind of mesh these two things together. I know Chronicles of Crime is a mm-hmm. really interesting way to do it. Uh, and as far as like kind of mixing the, the board game and the digital things that are going on. Uh, yeah, lots of interesting things are happening. And it's going to be a really cool next four or five years to see mm-hmm. uh, other people come up with new ideas and, and ways to do it mm-hmm. and make things hybrid. I think you always have to be careful that you're not... I mean, one of the main reasons people play uh, board games is because they want to get away from digital exactly. things. Exactly. get away from. Yeah. Exactly. And so you always have to be careful of the, the mood, going back into mood, and going back into theme, and going back into experience. You have to be careful that you're not getting too far away from what people want. At the same time, with more people coming into the hobby, there's going to be more and more people that want different things. And so yeah. you know, there's going to be more a, people to... It's yeah. an access point for some people. If they yeah. come from the world of Fortnite, then... I mean, like I, I saw... I just played um, Mansions of Madness for the first time, and the atmosphere in that is so awesome. I mean, because the iPad app, or because I guess we were playing, there's like a PC, like the Steam version, like a Steam client of, of the app that you played along with the game. But I kind of felt like we didn't actually have to play the board game. I think we could have actually played the entire thing on the computer. It was a really neat, it was a neat hybrid because it was actually very powerful, but it was also it kind of just made the board game feel unnecessary. So I don't know. I'm really, really torn on the whole mixing of those two mediums. Yeah, it, it's it's something that people are going to have to figure out more and more the balance of it or, you know, what mm-hmm. percentage it looks like. Is it 70, 30? Is it 90, mm-hmm. 10? I don't yeah. know as far as like how much going each way. But, you know, the cool thing is there's other people maybe smarter than us that are figuring it out right now. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. we can just kind of sit back and let them do it and we'll, we'll just play their games and we'll go from there. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, they're, they're going to have to get real developers to help them too. That's the other part. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a big change from you're basically going to have to get another team to help you build a piece of software right. alongside your your analog rules. Right, and I guess that's more, probably the main barrier is the, yeah. the cost. You know, video, yeah. video games are super expensive, but the market is so huge. You know, you can you can sell several million copies mm-hmm. and people still have never heard of your game. Yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. If you sell 5 million board games, okay, yep. everybody and their cousin has heard of your game at yep. that point because the markets are so different. Well, and of course, there's no production, no production cost or ramp up. Yeah. So you can right. sell those millions of copies in one day. Yeah. It just, exactly. If it goes viral, it just goes viral. You know, it's all first copy costs millions of dollars and every other copy is free. <laughs> exactly. <You know? laughs> and so well, let's talk about some more barriers to entry for board games. You know, one of the great things about video games is that you don't have to sit there and read a 20 page rule book before you start playing. Mm-hmm. You know, you can just pop the disc in. Now, the frustrating thing about video games is a lot of times you pop the disc in and there's like a four hour update that you have to download right. and like all these things. Like, gosh, I just want to play the game. But you don't have to read a book. You don't have to do anything. You can just jump right in through a tutorial. You just start pushing buttons. Things happen. You start figuring out how to play the game and you go. Board games, you can't do that. Uh, and there's several other things. So what are some of the biggest barriers to entry for board games? And what can board games learn from video games to maybe make those barriers a little bit lower? I mean, I like the idea of, I know some, there's a few designers who took the challenge to make a board game without a rule book where you can just like, um, what is it? The Friedman Freese game. I forgot what it's called now, but he has um, his, I forgot. I can't remember. We could, we could look it up after I'm sticking the show notes, but there's a game where you like you, it's a preset deck of cards and you, you like draw cards and each card basically tells you one rule about the game. And as you play it, it's kind of explaining itself to you. So I like that concept. Um, I actually have been working on a prototype which which has no setup. It's a board game that you just just open the box and it's perfectly set up. And when you put it away, it's also set up, which is a really neat design constraint 
you know, kind of targeting the same, same concept. Um, I will say in video games that making a tutorial is actually really difficult and there's a lot of hidden costs to making tutorials, namely that most players will not actually play a tutorial. Um, or if they do, they hate it and they bounce off your game. So you really have to make sure that you, you know, you're kind of secretly putting the, t- the tutorial in as you play. It's really, now it's like a bigger concept, like onboarding, where you're really thinking about, okay, what's the first player's experience going to be like? How can I kind of, you know, invisibly channel them towards learning about the game as they play it and having the game op- expand itself and all of its complexities naturally to the player as they, as they engage with it. Um, there's only a few tutorials I can think of in games that are, that are actually, uh, I guess, acceptable for most video games. Uh, Plants vs. Zombies is the big one that people talk about a lot um, because it, it basically just unfolds itself really nicely. You, you kind of don't even know you're in a tutorial. I think those are the best best type. Um, yeah, I think board games, probably it's all about rules complexity and just making sure that your rules are so few and so simple. I mean, I think we've all played board games that we got the rules wrong or you know, you get one important rule wrong. Uh, like I think, like a Blood Rage, I think every time I've played that game, I've gotten at least one rule wrong. And I, it's like such a good game. And the rules are actually mostly very intuitive. For some reason, I just, there's there's a couple rules that just, you know, ones that I don't remember every time. So I think it's really about elimination of rules and and simplifying games more than trying to create like a, you know, an onboard for a board game. I don't know how you, how you would do that. Though I guess in uh, legacy type games, you can actually do that pretty well through the expanding nature of the game. Yeah, that's true. And then you just want to make sure the first game is still really good. Yes. But then you're going to add more rules and complexity as you go. Charterstone does this and along with some others. Uh, mm-hmm. Eon's End is actually the best version of this I've ever one. seen. Uh, it's a deck builder. Uh, it's, it's cooperative. It's very good. One of the best games ever. I think it just did a huge Kickstarter uh, recently, uh, beginning of 2020. And so... A lot of people love it, but the the first game, basically all the cards, everything is packaged to make it really, really easy to set up the first game. And the rule book says, grab this pack of cards, put it here, do this. It almost just walks you through mm-hmm. the playing of the game right from the, right out of the box. And so you could just kind of go through the quick start, you know, play and learn how to play. It's almost like going through a tutorial for a video game and it's saying, all right, look over there, hit the right trigger. You're going to shoot the gun. Okay, cool. It just walks you through real simply Mm -hmm. where the cards go, how they work, the different things that they do. And so you get to learn as you're going, learn as you're playing, as opposed to, okay, I'm going to read this book and then we're going to try to play. And hopefully I can still remember all the things I read, which is unlikely. Right. Right. And the more complex that book was, the more unlikely it is. Well, it kind of lets you ease your way into it. And I think maybe that's, that's a way to do it. Obviously not all games lend themselves to doing Mm -hmm. it that way, but yeah, that's easily the biggest barrier for board games right now is, is complexity is the number of rules. And so if your book is hard to understand, it's hard to read. uh, If it's really thick, people are probably going to play something else. There is no shortage of games. And so if there's, if it's hard to understand your game, they're just going to pull out something else that's easier to understand or something they already know how to play Mm -hmm. and good luck getting your game played. And so it's just something for, for people to be thinking about how can you simplify your rule set, make it less complex. Video games had the advantage of the, the behind the scenes, the things that the player will never see the math, the way the Mm -hmm. rules are kind of, you know, going together. You can't leave the map because it'll instantly teleport you back. But a board game that, doesn't happen. You have to think about all that stuff in your brain. And so it makes it, makes it harder. So the barriers are definitely there. I will say though, like if you're, you know, if you have too much like hidden math on like, you know, was my 
chance to hit or how much how much damage does armor soak in a first person shooter if if you kind of festoon your game design with lots of extra hidden rules players there is still a negative effect even though it's you know it's calculated correctly every time players will still just be like what the heck is going on i hit that guy in the face it should have done like 50 damage it did like 32 why and so there still are negative effects you still have to make your game the internal rules for a video game you still have to make them pretty clear um although i guess the big the big difference is in a video game if you know, often if a, if a player doesn't understand how to play the game, they bounce off of it. And if a player doesn't understand a board game, they might actually still play it, but then they didn't have the optimal experience because they didn't get all the rules right. And then they go online and they say, this game is unbalanced and it's horrible. And I had a f- terrible game. Right. They don't realize that they played it wrong because they, you know, because they had to enforce the rules themselves. Yeah. Sid Myers talked about this. I saw a GDC talk he did mm-hmm. a while back and he talked about how when they, they were developing civilization, you know, something might have a 90% chance, have a nine out of 10 chance of, of hitting or something happening. And then when people would do it and every now and then they would fail or they would miss or whatever, and they get super mad. They're like, no, it should, <laughs> it should hit. It's like, it's an XCOM yeah, but, effect. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, you, you had a 10% chance of missing. Like you had to know that it, yep. it, there was a chance of failure, but people get so upset. And he talked about how frustrating that was and having to figure out the balance and having to create this experience uh, for people to really feel feel good, uh, so even in, though the odds are where they are. In XCOM, they famously added, they show you the percentage chance to hit, but it's actually, it's 10% higher. I think it's 10% is the number. It's 10% higher in reality than it's, than the number that they show you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just to avoid That's a good that. way to do it. <laughs> I guess, well, I, it is, yeah. It, it's pretty It's pretty amazing that they arrived at that conclusion. Yeah, you can't do that in a board game. You can't tell no. people ninety percent and then it really be ninety. No, you can't. <laughs> it just doesn't work. All right, let's talk about playtesting. We talked about it a little bit earlier with early access and whatnot, but going back into board games, what have you learned? What are you trying to accomplish in playtesting? What are some things that you kind of learned in the video game space that then you were able to bring into your board game playtesting process? I mean, the weird thing is, I feel like I like I do a lot more playtesting in video games because it's so much easier. You can try you can try out you know new systems so quickly and then stick it in front of someone. Um, you know, like you can even distribute your game on Steam even before it's released. So you can just make a new build. You know, you literally like type up a new rule system. You know, essentially combat or whatever. You know, compile it, test it a couple times, hit a button, and next thing you know, like every player in your ecosystem has that. So I I think the biggest thing I learned was don't make a game where you play test it constantly because it's so much work. I ended up by spending half my time just making components. And it's just, as you know, it's just dreary. It's like the worst part of making board games. So I think I, I learned to, I'm starting to learn to play more in my head, just actually not even on a table, but just like imagining what the game, what said rules would be like. Um, Or sometimes just using like coins and, really low fidelity, like just a piece of paper and a pencil and just play a game myself and then do a lot more of that before I unveil it onto people. So it's actually kind of the opposite for me. Yeah. Figuring out how to play a game in my head effectively Mm. sped up my design process by leaps and bounds. Yeah. Even just like, especially after you play test it one time, just getting some components on the table and just moving some cards around and rolling some dice and going, okay, here's how I want the game to play. Okay. I just did it for like 10 minutes. And let me, let me play this again 20 times in my head, just sitting here staring at the table. Like, it's funny. If you were to like watch my design process, it would just be me staring at a table. And it's like, what do you, it's called, you do, are, Gabe. 
you're right. Working. Yeah. Did you have a stroke? Are you okay? Yeah. Like, what do you, it's like, no, I'm fine. I, I've literally just played this game 14 yeah. times to figure out why it sucks and why it's not working and what I want to do differently. And, I, and it just speeds up your process yeah. uh, to figure out how to, how to do that. And you won't get the player psychology, but you'll get the mechanics right. and maybe the feelings. Yeah. You'll definitely get a feeling of like frustration or like half the time when I play something that I, a prototype, I, I don't even want to finish the game against myself. It's too, or yeah. too like arduous too much to think about, you know, and then that's a good symbol, a good sign for me. It's like, if I don't even want to finish it, like, okay, this is too much. Right. And especially when you're just trying to figure out how to make something work, you're like, okay, yeah. combat doesn't work. How do I yeah. make it work? And just, all right, what if I do this? And you kind of think through, all right, here's the turn. There's, uh, no, it's not gonna work. It's gonna, that's too many rules, too many, it's complicated. It takes too long, whatever. And then just, all right, what if I did this? And you just mm-hmm. kind of play it out over and over again. And then you make another prototype and then you play it again for real. And you're like, okay, well, that was a little bit better. And let me think through the next 10 ideas. And yep. it just makes it a little easier. And one thing you can't, one thing I've done a little bit is uh, simulate that uh, through, you can actually use software to simulate. Uh, like getting shuffling and drawing initial hand of cards just to see what it's what that's like. You can do it in a spreadsheet with a okay. randomization. So that's a, I mean, it's a quick thing and it's it's not great, but it's better than having to print up cards and shuffle them and kind of get a feeling what the distribution is going to be like. Right. Anything like that that can speed up your your prototyping process yeah. pays huge dividends for how long the game's actually going to take yep. to make. And I feel like you have to be careful. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. So when I was in Kentucky, I was growing up, uh, say I was a senior in high school. I graduated uh, in a little, little town in Kentucky and we would have ice storms every now and then. It gets so cold and everything would just freeze and the road would be frozen. When I, I remember one time I was driving uphill and I was moving barely one or two miles an hour. Like I wasn't going anywhere at all, but my speedometer said 60. Like the tires were, were flying. Wow. But I was barely, like, a, wow. like I, I looked over and a dog was just like casually walking down the sidewalk, <laughs> you know, yeah. outpacing me. And so I feel like sometimes that's that's the way board game design is. Yeah. You know, you, you feel like, gosh, I am doing so much, but I'm not getting anywhere. And I think a lot of times it's because we're doing things that aren't actually providing value for the design process, but it feels like yeah. we're doing, we feel like we're moving 60 miles yeah. an hour, but it's like, yeah, you're only going two miles at a time. And so you got to be like, careful. That's what it's like in like anyone's to-do list. I feel oh, like yeah. I'm adding tasks. I'm checking them off. Like, yeah, this is great. But it's like, where am I actually going? And especially when yeah. I get there, I don't even feel good, you know, yeah, exactly. but anyways, that's a little meta, but. Right. Anything else that you can talk about that you want to discuss that, you know, you, you've learned from video games, being able to come over into the board game space. It's, I guess it's just all about building, building prototypes and getting them in front of people. And sometimes, you know, I, you know, sometimes the, you're using the wrong tool. And so you feel like you're, you know, you're being inefficient or, um, so like being aware of that and changing that approach. I mean, probably probably the biggest thing would be, again, that emotional idea. Like, am I creating an experience that players, are, they have the emotions that I actually want them to have? Because in a video game, if you spend millions of dollars and you make a game that has the wrong emotions, you're either going to be unhappy or out of business. And I think a lot of board game designers, like, uh, like I just made a, a board game prototype I was really excited about. And like, it was completely working and it was completely the wrong emotions. And I, you know, I, it's just, I don't want to make a game with those emotions. And you're, it's, you, it's hard to market a game. Like you alluded to that before. How do you market a game that looks like one thing, but feels like something else? So in a board game, it's so easy to make new prototypes, relatively speaking, for, you know, compared to video games. I think it's really easy to make games with the wrong emotions. So I think that's, 
I think just basically being like, there, there's a movement in video games now towards looking at emotion. And I feel like that could come over to board games and probably should, if it isn't, if, if designers aren't talking about that now, then I feel like that's a, that's something we should be talking about and making sure that we have, we do an emotional design before we do the mechanical design or at least alongside it. Yeah, definitely. Well, Charlie, this has been great, man. Do you have any closing thoughts, any, anything to kind of leave listeners with anything I can, you know, learn, but going back and forth, any ideas from video games, anything else you would just want to kind of use as closing thoughts? Just keep going. And, uh, you know, sometimes a game's going to take a long time and, you know, that doesn't mean it's like a bad idea. I, I would say that any, any idea can be a great game, either video game or board game. It's just about finding the exact incarnation of that idea and making sure you're flexible on the, the specifics. But I think any theme and any, any core concept can be, you know, a groundbreaking game and, not that Subnautica was groundbreaking, but it was a genre that people thought was impossible and was, you know, only in the land of terrible, you know, Mario levels and terrible other games. And, you know, with enough persistence and flexibility, we, we found found the sweet spot for it. Yeah. Initially, people told you not to do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Don't make this game. You will go out of business. All the underwater games suck. Like the underwater levels in other games are the worst levels of those games. Why would you do that? Please don't do it. <laughs> and yeah, so not saying it's easy, but um, yeah, I'm a firm believer. Anything can be made into a great game. Awesome. Well, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the two minute elevator pitch for that one. Oh yeah, that's uh, so Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta. Um, I guess that's how you, I haven't actually seen the final box cover. So it's either that or Vampire Vendetta, but it's in the Vampire the Masquerade world um, by White Wolf and Horrible Guild. So Horrible Guild used to be Horrible Games. They, they did Potion Explosion and Railroad Inc. and King's Dilemma recently, which is getting lots of buzz. Um, yeah, it's the it's a competitive uh, card game where each player plays uh, one clan out of the Camarilla from the World of Darkness, which is a kind of big vampire world from White Wolf. Um, and it's super deep. There's a lot of rule changing that happens. It's really tense because you're basically playing cards to take human allies over different locations and you're using your blood to infuse your powers. Um, but of course that increases your risk of going to torpor. It's uh, my first board game. I worked on it for four years along with Bruno Faduti, which who uh, gloriously volunteered to partner with me and taught me tons and was a great, great partnership. And yeah, we're launching that on Kickstarter on March 10th might be now, depending when you're listening to this. And, uh, I'm really excited to see it on my first game on a store shelf. Very cool. Well, Charlie, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with your uh, game on Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I've been listening to your podcast for a long time. So check this off my life goals list. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?